you may have in your mind going to Psalm 51. Why are we going to something so heavy, so difficult this morning? Why can't we go to something more exciting or encouraging? But this is the text that the Lord has put in my heart as I prepared to come here. And maybe you can, if you have that kind of spirit right now, you can pray, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. God has some very good things for us here. And you will see as we get to the end of it, if we really take the truth in this psalm to heart and and how we deal with forgiveness, how we deal with confessing our sins and, and following David's example here, we will experience great joy. And we will experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we will have a a real zeal to share with others this good news. Uh, there's some very good things that come from rightly dealing with our sin. And that's often what we really need. When we sin, do we just say, yeah, I messed up and then move on? Or do we stop, take in the weight of what just happened and what we've done against God and then really take in with full faith in the beauty of forgiveness. Uh, these, these are these themes of this psalm. There's a handful of penitential psalms, but this one is, is often regarded as the greatest of them all. Um, and we will not be able to go over the whole psalm or, or get much into, into this psalm itself. There's so much here. But I hope this morning that we will better understand it, that we may better live it. As was noted, the very first title of the psalm, it introduces it as a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this is the context of what happened. David's uh, most notorious sin that had uh, just, it, it really was a turning point in his whole life and his family. Um, 2 Samuel 11 records this account. And if you read 2 Samuel, everything's going great until chapter 11. Not to say that there's some blessing afterwards, but the, after chapter 11, there's so many sad, sad stories in the book of 2 Samuel as a consequence of David's sin. What led to such, such grievous sin? David, the man after God's own heart. Well, there's, there's nine steps if you look in that, that um, passage. Well, the first one may not be there, but the first one is, of course, his sin of before looking uh, was the sin of not following God's plan with having many wives. David knew the scriptures in Deuteronomy 17. It forbid the kings to have many wives, lest they turn the king's heart away from God. Um, God's plan was for, even from the beginning, for one man and one woman in, in a marriage relationship. And so here is David already, he, he had already um, compromised in that area, and now he is now on his roof, in a time where he should not be on his roof. And here's the second thing. He was not diligent in his calling as a king to go out to war. He remained. And because of that, he was there in a place of temptation. <laughs> and then third, we see what he did on the roof. He looked out, and when he looked at Bathsheba bathing, he lingered with a lingering look that led to lust. And then we see, fourthly, that led to inquiring about, I wonder, with his curiosity, who she really is, wanting to know more. 
And that curiosity and inquiring led to him summoning her to the palace, um, finding out she was a married woman, but still he got in a place where he was alone with her and then committed adultery with her. That wasn't enough. He gets the news that she's pregnant, and what does he do? He tries to cover his mistake, cover his sin. And so he knows Uriah is out fighting. He calls him back and tries to get Uriah to go in, to go spend time with his wife and make it look like the baby is his. But Uriah is too loyal a servant and ends up staying in, staying in David's palace to, to uh, be loyal to David and protect him, even when he's um, persuaded in drunkenness. He still is loyal in his drunkenness. And so David goes to the next step of arranging his murder by commanding his, his commander Joab to arrange for him to be brought to battle and everyone to back away and for Uriah to be killed. And then finally David ends up marrying Bathsheba as if he could make it all, fix it all the situation and everything would be okay and he would not have any shame to this sin. But the the text ends in 2 Samuel 11, right after that. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord saw it all. For the next nine months to a year, David, in his silence, he wasn't willing to deal with his sin. He just kept it there. He suffers under the heavy hand of God. And Psalm 32 is another psalm that deals with with David and his sin, probably, maybe this is a situation, but it talks about your hand was heavy upon me. You know what that's like? The discipline of God when you won't deal with that sin. The hand of God was heavy upon him and brought him, dried up all of his strength until finally, in God's mercy, he sends Nathan, the prophet, to him. Nathan comes to him and he, he addresses his sin in a roundabout way. He gives him a story of, of a man who was rich, who had many many sheep, but he sees over there the poor man who has one sheep, a sheep that is so cherished that his family brings it in and it eats with them, is treated like a child. And that rich man says, oh, someone's coming to visit. He goes and he grabs the sheep, the one sheep of the poor man that's loved by that family, takes that sheep, slaughters it, prepares it for a meal. David's immediately aroused in his heart with the injustice of such a thing. How could someone do such a thing? David says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan says, you are the man. And then proceeds to talk about God's judgment, his judgment coming against him. You, David, have despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. David's humbled. Right there he does confess. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan then assures him, the Lord will forgive him. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, you still must suffer the consequences for your actions. Namely, his infant son from Bathsheba would die. His family would experience conflict. The sword would not depart from his house. In response to all of this, this is the situation. This psalm is born out of David in a time of repentance, of realizing, just taken with that blow of his sin exposed. God has seen it all. And then coming to that humbling of himself, he writes this psalm that gives us a picture of true repentance, a repentance that God desires from all of us when we sin. 
First of all, we see in the psalm his cry for mercy, which is immediately followed by his confession. And I want to look at David's confession. Our default when we sin is, is not to confess it. Our default is cover it. We want it hidden. But the right response is, is opposite of that, of covering, of concealing. It's admitting it before God. And Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen gives us a very concise uh, summary of what happens when we conceal our sin and what happens when we confess our sin. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What's the way of mercy? God's mercy is free to those who confess their sins, who admit it before them. So what can we learn from David and his confession here? First, we see David acknowledges his part in the sin. If you look at the first two verses, look how many times he says, my, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. In verse 3, my transgression, my sin. Five times he says, my. He acknowledges, this is, is mine. I have taken part in this. He fully admits his wrong. He takes responsibility for it. And so here we, we learn how important it is for us not to shift the blame when there's sin exposed, but acknowledge our part in that sin. The proud one points his finger, but the humble one bows his head. The proud one, he thinks it's the other person's fault, the humble one. He recognizes his own part in that. And may the Lord give us all grace to humble ourselves when our sin is exposed. Even when our sins are triggered by other people that are sinning against us or sin that's going on, let us acknowledge our own part because as farther on in this passage mentions down all the way to verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God desires that broken-hearted response of humbly admitting our sin because, as Jesus says in the parable, it's the one who cries, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He's the one who goes back to his house justified, holy, happy, right with God because he was the one. He wouldn't even look up his eyes like the other one who was just boasting in himself. David acknowledged his part in a sin, and then he also calls sin by its ugly names. The sins didn't seem that bad to David when he was doing them. Is that like, the, like us all, we, when we're in the midst of sin, it's like we put on the, the sunglasses of deception, and it looks like, oh, this is going to be something that will give me pleasure, and when we do it, it's not really that bad. But then when the sunglasses come off and the deception's gone and we see the light, the holy light of God shining on the sin, we see how hideous, how grotesque that I would do such an awful thing. This is what David does when he, he names these, referring to his sin here. He refers to it as transgression, my transgression. This is rebellion against God. God says something, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Just like a toddler does to his parents. 
But as here we, we face what God says and we directly go the other way in rebellion against God and his authority. He not only calls it a rebellion, he calls it my iniquity. Iniquity, this is the word for perversion. When we see sin in its proper light, it's a warped and twisted, perverted thing. How hideous it is. Sin is so ugly. Why would we participate in doing something so hideous like that? And then he calls it my sin. The word for sin is missing the mark, missing the aim. What was David aiming at? He was aiming at pleasure. He wanted the pleasure. But he did get a little of it for a short moment. But oh, how great and deep was the pain that came as a result, both him and his family. Because of that brief pleasure, he endured such great pain, the disciplining of God. And so when we come to sin, we must not try to sanitize it or downplay it. Really call it for what it really is, a hideous, grievous act of treachery in the Lord's sight. And notice also in his confession that he says he sinned against God. See that in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why was this sin so severe? He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his own body. He had sinned against, his sin affected his children, his, his wives. But here his sin, his lusting, his adultery, his lying, his murder, all of these were performed in the sight of the holy God. A God whose eyes are, whose, whose being is holy, who, who sees with holy eyes, whose heart is grieved when his children sin, and whose hand strikes with a disciplining force. He had sinned against God. And this discipline was coming, and even destruction was coming. Was David going to die? Well, he repented, and so that death did not come. But here he's crying out in this spot of realizing his sin against God. What does he need? He needs mercy. What is our great need when we sin so grievously against our holy God? We need mercy. And the Lord gives it. We just sang about that. Have mercy on me, O God, David cries out. In what ways do we need God's mercy? This psalm highlights primarily two ways we need God's mercy. We need his mercy and forgiveness, and we need his mercy and cleansing. Now we see these two themes right at the beginning. He says in the end of verse 1, blot out my transgression. And then in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He needed these two things. And these two themes, we could say they blend together. Forgiveness and cleansing, are they different? Uh, Well, they do blend together, but they are distinguished in in this passage and in many parts of Scripture. 
um, 1 John 1, 9 includes both the forgiveness and the cleansing. Both are needed. And here, as we see this psalm, we need both of these forgiveness and cleansing for God to do both of these. We need God to do the forgiveness, which is primarily God fixing the damaged relationship with him. It has to do with our, our broken relationship with God. And we need the cleansing, which is primarily God fixing our damaged and polluted hearts. David recognized he needed both of these. He needed a restored relationship with God who would cover his sin, and he needed God to clean out the filth of his heart. And I want to continue just looking at these two themes with the core of this passage and focus on four verses in the middle of this psalm, and that is verse 9 through 12. What is forgiveness? Most of us realize Forgiveness is important. It fixes relationships horizontally. We need it with the Lord. We need to be our relationship fixed. But what actually happens in forgiveness? What actually goes on in God's mind when he forgives us? Well, Scripture gives us these images to help us understand forgiveness. These beautiful images that show us what happens in forgiveness. And right here in verse 9, we see two of them. The first one is, hide your face from my sins. When God forgives, he hides his face from our sins. All of our sins are in God's sight. We are all naked and exposed to the Lord. We can't hide anything from God. We know that. But in the midst of sin, we all know the deception that comes over us to think that we can hide. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 16, 17 says that God's eyes are on all our ways and that our iniquity is not concealed to his eyes. What a sobering thought that is. That helps keep us from sin when we are tempted to sin. I know the eyes of the Lord are watching. And what a terrifying that thought is in the midst of sin. When we are holding something back from God. The eyes of God see and know every part of us. And know what we do, how we think, how we feel what we say if Jesus were to come right in today physically come to us and be here and look each of us in the eye could we look him back in the eye knowing that he knows all about us yet there's nothing that's undealt with before him unconfessed sin his all-knowing eyes looked upon his disciples yet he was merciful to them. He walked with them. And yet, remember when he looked at Peter, thereafter Peter denied him. The Lord looked at him. And Peter melted. All of us are meant to live right with God so that if Jesus came right now and looked at us, we wouldn't be ashamed at his coming. We are meant to walk in the light to live in the open before God, willing to him to take anything from us, knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is the kind of fellowship the Lord wants us to have with him, walking in openness before him and walking in assurance that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. David goes on to share another picture Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. 
in verse 9. Here again is the term blot out. This word means to, to wipe out something, to erase it, to annihilate it. Moses, when he was provoked by the Israelites and the Lord was provoked by the Israelites, he, he was going to destroy them. He said, blot out my name from your book so that the people of Israel would be saved. Incredible prayer. The term is blotting out. Erase my name. It means it's written down. It's recorded. Our sins, when we commit them, it's as if they're put in a book and recorded. And forgiveness means that those sins that are written out, the Lord blots them out. He erases them so that they will not be brought up again and rehearsed. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness. The Lord removing our sins. And so we can say forgiveness, this idea of, of a covering of our sins or even a sending away of our sins is taken away all of the guilt so that we are restored in a relationship with God. This is what David recognized he needed, this type of forgiveness. But then he moves on to talk about the cleansing in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He needed God to do a creation in him. Creation is something that's powerful. God can make things out of nothing. And when our hearts are deformed by sin, they're so twisted up, they need to be reconfigured. They need to be recreated in a clean way. And this is what David's praying for. My heart is so messed up, and David knows there's no way he can refigure his heart. He needs God to come and create a clean heart in him. His heart is filled with the filth of sin. It's not clean. He needs God to come and bring that cleansing, that clean heart. And then he says, renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. And steadfast is the best word right here. Um, this is the type of spirit that he needed put back in him. He didn't have. This word right or steadfast refers to um, something that's steady and reliable. And it's used uh, in the story of Samson when Samson is, has uh, sinned and now his um, hair has been cut. He's been taken captive by the Philistines and he is now being taken out to be on display, to be one to mock in the house of Dagon, the temple of Dagon before the Philistines. And he calls, he says to the boy who's leading him, please let, let me rest my hands on the pillars that on which this house rests because he knew he wanted to be in that place for to do his final act of judgment and pushing down the pillars and bringing that whole house of worship down. He wanted the place, the pillars on which the house rests. There were two pillars which everything in that huge temple of Dagon rested. These steady pillars held up the whole thing. And this is the type of spirit David wants, a steady spirit that's reliable, that's like a strong pillar that doesn't, that doesn't move or shake. He wanted this steadiness again. And this we see true repentance. Unlike Saul, who when he was, his sin was addressed, he, he didn't want to face the consequences of his sin. Lord, please deal with it, because I don't want to deal with the consequences. But here is true repentance. Lord, please forgive me and cleanse me so I don't go back to that sin again. 
I want to be reliable and steadfast before you. Give me a steadfast spirit within me. This is a prayer we can pray to the Lord, that he would keep us from sin when we are recovering from it. Then we see now the restoration in verse 11 and 12. This result, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't think David's talking about losing his salvation here. Maybe people think about that. He's, he's asking the Lord not to remove his presence and his Holy Spirit because that would mean, for one thing, he would lose his, his position as king as the Lord left Saul, the Spirit of God left Saul. He knew about that and what devastating consequences that led. God's Spirit came upon those anointed, um, chosen servants of God in the Old Testament to do the work. And David did not want that to be away. But I think even more so, David is just not wanting the Lord's presence to leave him because he remembers, he knows what it's like to be under the power of the Holy Spirit, to live his life under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, do you know that as well? What it's like to walk in the presence of God, to live conscious of his presence each day, And then you know what breaks that so often is our sin. We come and fall into sin, and then there it goes. We lose the conscious presence of God. We lose the walk, walking in the Spirit, because we've given in to the flesh. Romans says you can't have both. You walk in the flesh or you walk in the Spirit. And so you need to go back to the Spirit. And this is a prayer we pray now realizing all of us receive the Holy Spirit when we trust in Christ. And we can live our lives filled with the Spirit as God commands. But we must be careful lest we grieve the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. The Spirit of God wants to take and to move in us and to lead us, and yet our sinning, will cause him to depart from us. And so we pray, Lord, let me not sin that your spirit doesn't depart. Or when we have sinned, we say, Lord, please, I don't want to go forward without your presence, without your spirit. Like the Israelites, we're not going into this land unless you go in with us. We need the Lord's presence. And dealing with sin the right way is so key to our being consistent and walking with the spirit. The Spirit is the incredible gift that God has given to us. He produces amazing things in our lives. The the love and the joy and the peace, the self-control. How are we going to keep and keep that steadfast spirit and to stay faithful to God and have that self-control if we don't have the Holy Spirit? It's not just our own trusting in selves and trying to do better. We need the help of God's Spirit. He is the helper given to us to help us to follow God and be faithful to him. And so, let us deal with sin as soon as it is exposed so that we can have the Spirit's help and not grieve him and send him away from us. And then we see uh, next after him praying for the Spirit is this fruit of the Spirit in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David had lost his joy. He was under such great conviction 
It had drained away from him. Can you imagine that going that long without any joy because of his sin? And now he knew what it was like before to be the the psalmist who would sing. These psalms we have of David, half of the psalms are written by David. And the exuberance and the joy you read in them are incredible. When the Holy Spirit of God came upon him and he sang to the Lord and this joy recorded in these psalms, David knew that, yet it all vanished because of sin. Now here he is at the bottom. Here he is crying out in the dust, Lord, I want the joy again. Will you restore this joy of your salvation? The joy was rooted in the salvation of God. He had seen God work. Oh, how many ways had God restored him and and saved him from Saul running there those formative years in his own life as he saw again and again how the Lord had protected him and he responded to God's salvation and praise, the Lord rescuing him from Saul, rescuing from his enemies, rescuing him from this and that. And now he wanted to remember the salvation of God and let the Spirit of God put that joy back in his heart. When we deal with sin, as God says, we confess it, we forsake it, come with a cry, believing in God's forgiveness. The Lord fills us with joy. Blessed are the forgiven. Blessed are those whose sin is covered, he says in Psalm 32. And Jesus mentions this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They have the joy of knowing that their heart is clean. It's pure. And then they have the joy of knowing they're going to see God. Even greater joys to come. He will show us the path of life. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. So if we are in sin, we lose that. The joy is gone. But the Lord restores it. He does. You know it. The Lord comes when we come and truly deal with sin, as he says, and gives us that joy of our salvation. And then uphold me with a willing spirit. The freedom, the willing spirit, the eager spirit that's willing to follow God and willing to obey God. He needs the Lord to uphold him with that that willing spirit, that open spirit before God. And I want to just close in, in challenging us with verse 12 that what happens when all of this takes place in our lives, when we're restored after sin and the joy is back, what happens? We begin to tell others about our great God who forgives us. In verse 12, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David was not going to be silent about his sin. What a shameful thing. His sin is recorded in the word of God for us. But now the Lord has used his story to teach many transgressors God's ways. David himself spoke about this later on. He wanted everyone to know who was in the midst of transgression, who was still in rebellion against God. He can tell them, I know what you're doing. I was right there with you, rebelling against God. But you know what? I came to acknowledge my sin, I confessed it, and the Lord forgave me and he cleansed me, and I want you to know 
He wants to forgive and cleanse you too. And if you do, you will come back to him and know all of these things that I experienced. He says, sinners will return to you. He's going to speak and he has this faith. He knows when you declare how the gospel has changed your life, it has power and God returns sinners to him. He brings about that repentance. This is the outflow. Many people, maybe you, you're confused about thinking of evangelism as this thing that you should just do and you just got to try to work hard at this. And yeah, there's, there has to be some work at it, but sharing the word of God is an outflow of what God is doing in our lives. When we have experienced his forgiveness in our own lives, it comes out of us. We share, we want, we have the spirit of God moving us to say, yes, okay, today, Lord, give me a chance to speak about you. And then the chance comes and, and the Lord gives us a chance to say something and tell them, I want you to know this forgiveness, this joy, this power of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, Leah is her name. Uh, when we went to, maybe five years ago, we went to one of the villages in Pa'au and began sharing the gospel we, met that there, we found out there was one Christian in that town named Sailat. She had never been really taught. As soon as she was, uh, realized we were there, she said, well, let me help you share the gospel, and will you teach me? I've heard, I believed in Christ, but I've never really grown. There's no church here. We began teaching her, and what happened? Over the course of months, she read through the book of John, read through the book of Acts. She said, okay, you guys come every week. I'm taking off my work all afternoon, and I'm just going to lead you to people. We're going to go around our town and share the gospel. We went around with her, and one of the first things she would often say, this is not what we usually how we introduce the gospel, but she would meet these friends or people she knew, and she said, let me tell you, you need to believe in Jesus, because if you do, you will have the Holy Spirit come and fill you with a joy that I can't describe. That was her, that was her persuasion. You need the Holy Spirit. How true it is. People need the Holy Spirit. If we are without the Holy Spirit, are we in sin? And those who have never turned to Christ, they don't know any of these great blessings we have because of the Holy Spirit. So let us apply this passage, and in 1 John 7 through 9, let us apply what the text says there. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son cleanses us. Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, I don't have any sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. This Amen. is the good news. Amen. Let's apply it. Amen. Pray with me, please.